Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living A Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. Chapter four and part of five. Welcome back. I'm about to embark upon a journey I've been focused on for some time, but just couldn't find the time to do it. I am talking about this journey with my podcast and A Course in Miracles. As a college professor, I've had 18 wonderful years, but my journey is about to shift. I will be going live in January and offering courses to help people understand and live the life this book sets out. I've known since first reading the book that I would take on the role of a teacher. I've let the universe be my guide and the Holy Spirit show me the way. It's time for me to make this my primary focus. In the coming weeks, I'll give you the details. And if you are interested, you are invited to join in on learning to live in this moment, learning the full message and teachings of this book. So let's begin. Chapter four is called Illusions of the Ego. We stopped at section five called the body sorry, the ego body illusion. This week we'll cover the ego body illusion, the rewards of God, creation and communication, and then start chapter five, which is called healing and wholeness. We'll do the introduction and the invitation to the Holy Spirit. Like I said before, I'll only be covering five sections at a time. We'll continue with chapter five in two weeks. So let's begin. Page 65, called The Ego Body Illusion, starts like this on paragraph one. All things work together for good. There are no exceptions except in the ego's judgment. The ego exerts maximal vigilance about what it permits into awareness. And this is not the way a balanced mind holds together. The ego is thrown further off balance because it keeps its primary motivation from your awareness and raises control rather than sanity to predominance. The ego has every reason to do this according to the thought system which give rise to it and which it serves. Paragraph two starts with, A major source of the ego's off-balance state is its lack of discrimination between the body and the thoughts of God. Thoughts of God are unacceptable to the ego because they clearly point to the non-existence of the ego itself. The ego therefore either distorts them or refuses to accept them. It cannot, however, make them cease to be. It therefore tries to conceal not only unacceptable body impulses, but also the thoughts of God, because both are threatening to it. Next page, page 66. Paragraph four starts with the body is the ego's home by its own election. It is the only identification with which the ego feels safe since the body's vulnerability is its own best argument that you cannot be of God. Paragraph five. This is the question that must be asked. Where can I go for protection? 
Seek and ye shall find does not mean that you should seek blindly and desperately for something you would not recognize. Meaningful seeking is consciously undertaken, consciously organized, and consciously directed. The goal must be formulated clearly and kept in mind. Learning and wanting to learn are inseparable. You learn best when you believe what you are trying to learn is of value to you. However, not everything you may want to learn has lasting value. Indeed, many of the things you want to learn may be chosen because their value will not last. Paragraph six starts like this at the bottom. The ego thinks it is an advantage not to, the ego thinks that it's an advantage not to commit itself to anything that is eternal because the eternal must come from God. Eternalness is the only function the ego has tried to develop, but has systematically failed to achieve. Next page, page 67. Uh, Sentence six, just a couple sentences down from the top says, preoccupations with problems set up to be incapable of solution are favorite ego devices for impeding learning progress. In all these Diversionary tactics, however, the one question that is never asked by those who pursue them is, what for? This is the question you must learn to ask in connection with everything. What is the purpose? Whatever it is, it will direct your efforts automatically. When you make a decision of purpose, then you have made a decision about your future effort a decision that will remain in effect unless you change your mind. (laughs) So this section called the ego body illusion is trying to start that conversation about what the difference between the ego um, and God is, you know, what, what we've created in our mind as the ego and our, our ego thoughts, and then our thoughts from God trying to explain to us that there is this split, that there is this separation between those two mind thoughts. I like at the end when it says to ask yourself always what, you know, what is the purpose of anything that happens? Like, what's the purpose? Why is this happening? And by doing that, you're putting out to the universe, Holy Spirit and God, that you want direction and they will give it. The next section on page 67 is called the rewards of God. Paragraph one, sentence three starts with this. I've spoken of the ego as if it were a separate thing acting on its own. This was necessary to persuade you that you cannot dismiss it lightly and must realize how much of your thinking is ego directed. Sentence six says the ego is nothing more than a part of your belief about yourself. Your other life has continued without interruption and has been and always will be totally unaffected by your attempts to disassociate it. Paragraph two, in learning to escape from illusions, your debt to your brother is something you must never forget. It is the same debt that you owe to me. Paragraph three starts with, 
you have very little trust in me as as yet, but it will increase as you turn more and more often to me instead of your ego for guidance. The results will continue, sorry, the results will convince you increasingly that this next page choice is the only sane one you can make. No one who learns from experience that one choice brings peace and joy while other brings chaos and disaster needs additional convincing. Sentence five says the rewards of God, however, are immediately recognized as eternal. Since this recognition is made by you and not the ego, the recognition itself establishes that you and your ego cannot be identical. Paragraph four, the ego and the spirit do not know each other. The separated mind cannot maintain the separation except by disassociating. Paragraph five says, how can you teach someone the value of something he has deliberately thrown away? He must have thrown it away because he did not value it. You can only show him how miserable he is without it and slowly bring it nearer so he can learn how his misery lessens as he approaches it. Sentence six says, I'm teaching you to associate misery with the ego and joy with the spirit. You have taught yourself the opposite. You are still free to choose, but can you really want the rewards of the ego in the presence of the rewards of God? Next page, page 69 at the top, paragraph seven starts like this. I will go with you to the Holy One and through my perception, can, he can bridge that the little gap. Your gratitude to your brother is the only gift I want. I will bring it to God for you, knowing that to know your brother is to know God. If you are grateful to your brother, you are grateful to God for what he created. And paragraph eight says, as you come closer to a brother, you approach me. And as you withdraw from him, I become distant to you. Sentence four at the bottom says, God will come to you only as you will give him to your brothers. Learn first of them and you will be ready to hear God. That is because the function of love is one. So in this section, I'm going to just really cover the last part of it because I think it's the biggest message when the rewards of God, it's really, really clear here that the only way for us to know God as he created us is to let our brothers and sisters in. And what I mean by that is to know them and not judge them and accept them for who they are as part of you, as as part of the sonship and as part of the oneness with God. And that's the clear message here is that until we can do that, God will be, God will seem distant. God will not be there sharing the messages we want to hear. And it's not because he doesn't want to share them. It's because we won't hear them. As long as we hold anger and bitterness and judgment towards others. The next section is called creation and communication. That's on the same page, page 69. I'm going to start with paragraph two, skipping paragraph one. It says, everything the ego perceives is a separate whole, 
without the relationships that imply being. The ego is thus against communication, except insofar as it is utilized to establish separateness rather than to abolish it. The communication system of the ego is based on its own thought system, as is everything else it dictates. Its communication is controlled by its need to protect itself, and it will disrupt communication when it experiences threat. Next page, page 70. Paragraph three at the top says, in contrast, spirit reacts in the same way to everything it knows is true and does not respond at all to anything else, nor does it make any attempt to establish what is true. It knows that what is true is everything that God created. It is in complete and direct communication with every aspect of creation because it is in complete and direct communication with its creator. This communication is the will of God. Sentence nine, a little bit further down, says the communi- this communication is perfectly abstract since its quality is universal in application and not subject to any judgment, any exception, or any alteration. God created you by this and for this. The mind can distort its function, but it cannot endow, endow itself with functions it was not given. That is why the mind cannot totally lose the ability to communicate, even though it may refuse to utilize it on behalf of being. I'm going to stop right there for a second. So what the contrast here with the spirit is that our line of communication is constantly open. The only block is our ego. And as long as we judge people and as long as we're constantly uh, negative and seeing the world as a negative place and living in fear, fear being a big, big part of this, then we cannot hear God. We have blocked that communication and we need to unblock it. Paragraph four says existence as well as being rests on communication. Existence, however, is specific in how, what, and with whom communication is judged to be worthy, worth undertaking. Being is completely without these distinctions. It is a state in which the mind is in communication with everything that is real. Sentence six, closer to the bottom of that paragraph says, this is your reality. Sorry, do not desecrate it or recoil from it. It is your real home, your real temple, and your real self. Paragraph five says, God, who encompasses all being, created beings who have everything individually, but who want to share it to increase their joy. Nothing real can be increased except by sharing. That is why God created you. Sentence seven says, remember that in the kingdom, there is no difference between having and being as there is in existence. In the state of being, the mind gives everything always. Paragraph six starts with the Bible repeatedly states that you should praise God. This hardly means that you should tell him how wonderful he is. He has no ego with which to accept such praise and no perception in which to judge it. 
But unless you take your part in the creation, his joy is not complete because yours is incomplete. Paragraph seven says, God has kept your kingdom for you, but he cannot share his joy with you until you know it with your whole mind. Paragraph eight, God is praised whenever any mind learns to be wholly helpful. Sentence three says, the truly helpful are invulnerable because they are not protecting their egos and so nothing can hurt them. Their helpfulness is their praise of God and he will return their praise of him because they are like him and they can rejoice together. Sentence seven near the bottom says, the truly helpful are God's miracle workers whom I direct until we are all united in the joy of the kingdom. I will direct you to wherever you can be truly helpful and to whom can follow my guidance through you. It's interesting because when I was first reading this book, the few times, first few times, this section was really important to me. And that message at the bottom, I sort of took personally (laughs) that it was my job to help people and to help them understand this book. And I picked that up. But I, the biggest message I got out of this, it's not just about me, of course, it's about all of us. And in being helpful, sorry, with all of our brothers and sisters, in being helpful with you, that's how I'm helping God. That's what God wants us to do. And if we can see that, that helpfulness is part of who we are. So on page 72, which starts chapter five, and chapter five is called Healing and Wholeness. So we're going to start with the introduction. Paragraph one, sentence one says simply this, to heal is to make happy. Sentence four says, the light that belongs to you is the light of joy. Radiance is not associated with sorrow. Joy calls forth an integrated willingness to share it and promotes the mind's natural impulse to respond as one. Paragraph two says to be wholehearted, you must be happy. If fear and love cannot coexist, and if it is impossible to be wholly fearful and remain alive, the only possible whole state is that of love. There is no difference between love and joy. Therefore, the only possible whole state is the wholly joyous. To heal or to make joyous is therefore the same as to integrate and to make one. That is why it makes no difference to what part or by what part of the sonship the healing is offered. Every part benefits and the benefits and benefits equally. Paragraph three, you are being blessed by every beneficent thought of any of your brothers anywhere. You should want to bless them in return out of gratitude. You need to know them individually. Oh, sorry. You need not know them individually or they you. The light is so strong that it radiates throughout the sonship and returns thanks to the father for radiating his joy upon it. And sentence seven says, 
That is why the healer's prayer is, and it's that last line on this page, let me know this brother as I know myself. So this chapter starting off healing and wholeness by telling us that in being happy and holy, not H-O-L-Y, but like whole, W-H-O-L-E, wholly joyous, that is how we share gratitude with our brother. That is how we show God that we are part of his sonship, that we see ourselves as part of the whole. So the last section I'm going to cover today is called The Invitation to the Holy Spirit on page 73. Paragraph one starts like this. Healing is a thought by which two minds perceive their oneness and become glad. This gladness calls to every part of the sonship to rejoice with them and lets God go out into them and through them. Sentence five says, remember that spirit knows no difference between having and being. The higher mind thinks according to the laws spirit obeys and therefore honors only the laws of God. To spirit, getting is meaningless and giving is all. Having everything, spirit holds everything by giving it and thus creates as the father created. Sentence 10 says, if you share a physical possession, you do divide its ownership. So if you have something physical and you share it with someone else, then you both own it. If you share an idea, however, you do not lessen it. All of it is still yours, although all of it has been given away. Further, if the one to whom you give it accepts it as his, he reinforces it in your mind and thus increases it. If you can accept the concept that the world is one of ideas, the whole belief in the false association the ego makes between giving and losing is gone. Send, uh, paragraph two says, let us start our process of reawakening with just a few simple concepts. Thoughts increase by being given away. The more who believe in them, the stronger they become. Everything is an idea. How then can giving and losing be associated? Paragraph three says, this is the invitation of the Holy Spirit. I have said already that I can reach up and bring the Holy Spirit down to you, but I can bring him to you only at your invitation. The Holy Spirit is your right mind, as he was in mine. The Bible says, may the mind be in you that was also in Jesus Christ, and uses this as a blessing. It is the blessing of miracle-mindedness. It asks that you may think as I thought, joining with me in Christ's thinking. So just remember that this conversation, we're having a direct message from Christ, and Christ is telling us that that is what he did, is he brought the Holy Spirit into his mind. The Holy Spirit, uh, paragraph four says, the Holy Spirit is the only part of the Holy Trinity that has a symbolic function. He is referred to as the healer, the comforter, and the guide. He is also described as something separate. Next page, page 74, and apart from the Father and from the Son. 
I myself said, if I go, I will send you another comforter and he will abide with you. This is what Christ told us. His symbolic function makes the Holy Spirit difficult to understand because symbolism is open to different interpretations. As a man, Christ says, and also one of God's creations, my right thinking, which came from the Holy Spirit or the universal inspiration, taught me first and foremost that this inspiration is for all. I could not have it myself without knowing this. The word know is proper in this context because the Holy Spirit is so close to knowledge that he calls it forth, or better, allows it to come. I've spoken before of the higher or true perception, which is so near to truth that God himself can flow across the little gap. Knowledge is always ready to flow everywhere, but it cannot oppose. Therefore, you can obstruct it, although you can never lose it. Paragraph five says the Holy Spirit is the Christ mind, which is aware of the knowledge that lies beyond perception. Paragraph six, sentence three says the Holy Spirit is the mind of the atonement. He represents a state of mind close enough to one mindedness that transfers it, sorry, that transferred to it is at last possible. Perception is not knowledge, but it can be transferred to knowledge or cross over into it. It might even be more helpful here to use the literal meaning of transferred or carried over since the last step is taken by God. Paragraph seven says the Holy Spirit, the shared inspiration of all the sonship, induces a kind of perception in which many elements are like those in the kingdom of heaven itself. So first, its universality is perfectly clear and no one who attains it could believe for one instant that sharing it involves anything but gain. Second, it is incapable of attack and therefore truly open. This means that although it does not engender knowledge, it does not obstruct it in any way either. And finally, it points the way beyond the the healing that it brings and leads the mind beyond its own integration towards the paths of creation. It is at this point that sufficient quantitative change occurs to produce a real qualitative shift. So it's interesting when I read this last part about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have to tell you that that is exactly, I read those words over and over and over again. And I have to tell you, that's exactly how I feel my connection to the Holy Spirit is. I feel that my, the clarity that I have now, not only, not only about this book, but about my life journey is through the Holy Spirit, that I've accepted him as my comforter, my healer, and my guide every single day of my life. And I do not do anything without asking him, is this the decision I need to make? And that's what we're, that's how we're ending today. We're ending it at page 75 and we'll pick it up with the voice of God in two weeks. But I have to tell you that this perception or this shift for me has come from the Holy Spirit. And that's why this change is coming for me. That is why I've decided that I'm going to let go of some of the other things that I'm doing in my life and make this a primary focus. 
because it is my job, just as it is your job. So I'm not, I'm not making myself any more special, by no means special, than anybody else. But I know this is my purpose in life. I know this is what I need to do. So I hope you join me on this journey. Okay, so I'll be uploading another episode in two weeks. Again, we'll begin on that page and we will start with the, oh, I just lost it, didn't I? Let's tell you what we will start with. We are the voice of God. That's what we'll start with next week. Okay, well, I'd like to say again, hello to all my friends around the world. Oh, this has been such a a big time for me. And knowing that people are listening and hopefully <laughs> my it's my goal, I believe in life to help share this message and hopefully it's helping. And I am hoping and praying that all of you are well and free from fear. We are living in a world where fear is the narrative. They want us to be fearful and we need to stop it, stop it. And the only way we can do that is we need to shift it to peace and joy. Thanks for listening. I can be contacted by email at trifectanow3 at gmail.com. If you'd like to ask a question, share a comment, or just say hello. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Keep sharing that love. Remember, this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment. It's the only one that truly matters. Always love. Denise.